Dressed for Men by Rachel Dax Performed by Sarah Harris-Davis Sarah, aged 85, is sitting on the balcony of a London flat with the cityscape behind her. I fell in love with Jack immediately. Some people don't believe that love at first sight is possible, but I can honestly tell you, I saw him and I knew he was the one. I was 20 and had not long qualified as a primary school teacher specialising in music and I was also already assistant choir mistress at the local Methodist church. One summer's evening on my way home from school I popped in to meet the new church organist and choir master before Sunday services. As I walked into the church 20 minutes early I was transported to the heavens by the most sublime rendition of Vido's Toccata I had ever heard. Notes resounding from pillar to pillar, floor to vaulted ceiling. A blonde-haired young man responsible for this celestial performance appeared lost in a wild dream and I stood watching him fascinated, completely transfixed. When the last note faded, I found myself spontaneously applauding and he turned around and looked down on me, grinning from year to year. At which point my heart exploded in my chest. He climbed down from the organ loft, greeting me excitedly. You must be Sarah who plays piano, violin and sings. I've been aching to meet you and with that we started a conversation about music which I knew would never end. As well as being employed by our church he was also a peripatetic clarinet teacher at high schools across Swansea. He was the same height as me with cobalt blue eyes and an aquiline nose. Slender but not scrawny and utterly captivating in every way. Within a few weeks, Jack and I were inseparable. Each night after work, we'd meet in the church hall to arrange hymns for the choir and take it in turns to play the piano as the other sang. Afterwards, we would go to the local pub where he would drink port and I sherry. Though he was from the other side of town, Swansea was still small enough in the 1950s for everyone to have a meaningful connection to someone else. And it turned out that Jack taught clarinet at the school where my father was headmaster. So soon he was treated like part of the family. 
<laughs> they simply adored him. Each night after walking me home, he would come in for a cup of tea, charm the socks of my parents, and then, as I took him to the door, he'd kiss me softly on the lips and tell me I was the loveliest girl in the whole wide world. One night, six months into our relationship, we were practicing Queen of the Night by Mozart for fun, seeing whether I could hit all the high notes. We'd gone through it three times without me getting there. And then, finally, on the fourth rendition, I did it. Every note reached pitch perfect. We were so excited that we spontaneously polkered around the hall and then afterwards he kissed me passionately on the lips and asked me to marry him and I said yes without a moment's hesitation. I knew without question that it could only be him. No one else had ever come this close to bringing me such an alloyed happiness had made me feel so joyful to be alive. All previous sweetheart had simply paled into insignificance since I had met him. I won't bore you with the details of the wedding other than to say it was a musical affair. <laughs> the minister indulging us with four extra hymns, the choir singing in harmonies we had arranged ourselves. Ah, nothing like a church full of people belting out at Charles Wesley, accompanied by a 30-strong choir singing the harmonies. Even now, though my faith faded long ago, I still sometimes pop into the local Methodist church just for the pleasure of singing that full blast. I would love to tell you that my wedding day was the happiest day of my life. But that evening was when I first sensed that something wasn't right and it tarnished what had indeed until then been a wonderful occasion. I was a virgin, so didn't know much about bedroom matters, but I did know enough to know that as soon as we reached our hotel suite, the bridegroom should want to take his new bride straight to bed. But instead, Jack hesitated and asked if I would like a drink while pouring himself one twice the size of his usual tipple and gulping it down anxiously. At first I thought, like me, he was nervous and just needed a little Dutch courage, so I joined him in the sherry. But an hour passed and still nothing. He hadn't come near me. All he wanted to do was drink and talk about how the hymns had sounded, and I could feel my excited anticipation morphing into anxiety. Unsure of how to stop him from sinking into a drunken abyss, 
I decided to sing and instantly he lit up and joined in. By the time we got to a nightingale sang in Barclay Square, we were slow dancing and finally the dancing turned to kissing and we moved to the bed. It wasn't that it didn't happen, it did, but it was fumbling and awkward. Jack kept his eyes tight shut throughout and went soft before technically he should have been done. I knew that something fundamental had gone awry because none of the tiny few things my mother told me to expect had happened. It hadn't even hurt that much. Afterwards, Jack rolled onto his back without looking at me and was deadly silent. Several minutes passed and then finally he squeezed my hand and said, I love you. He then turned on his side, facing away from me. And that was that. I lay there, knowing that nothing was right, but not having sufficient vocabulary in my head to explain it. The rest of the honeymoon was much the same. Blissful days of laughing, walking and talking. Then at night, an awkward or embarrassing encounter, leaving me feeling inadequate and insecure. I started to wonder whether it was me. Maybe I wasn't sexy enough for him. I knew I was pretty, but I'd never really been one for fashion. I dressed nicely in good quality clothes, but didn't go in for makeup or jewellery, and I certainly had never thought it necessary to glam up for meeting Jack. Our affinity had been so powerful that I guess I assumed that he desired me the way I desired him. But suddenly, I wondered whether he actually found me frumpy and plain. So when I returned to Swansea, after ten days of honeymoon, I decided I needed to reassess my image. I didn't want to be too dramatic, but I invested in two low-cut blouses and two skirts with a split in the back, a nice pair of high heels and some bright red lipstick. I even bought myself some rollers to put a curl in my hair. The first Saturday evening we were back, I made dinner, and then before dishing it out, I popped upstairs and dressed up in my new attire, feeling excited and sexy, loving the idea of making my new husband finally ravish me. And when I came downstairs and entered our tiny dining room, all dolled up and raring to go, instead of jumping up from the table and sweeping me into a passionate embrace, Jack looked decidedly uncomfortable, finally getting up only to suggest he help serve dinner. Deflated and slightly mortified that he'd shown not even a flicker of desire, I followed him into the kitchen and together we dished out our food in silence and then made stunted conversation as we ate. Once we were done, he 
He told me he had a headache and asked, did I mind if he went out for a walk on his own to see if he could clear it? After he left the house, I ran upstairs and hurled myself on our bed, weeping. I felt like he thought me quite ugly. I cleaned off my makeup, changed into my nightie and lay in the dark, deciding to pretend I was asleep when he came back so he couldn't witness my shame. He was away for almost two hours, and on his return, he crept into our bed and put his arms around me, holding me like he had never held me before. And I wondered whether maybe I was just unlucky, that he did have a terrible headache after all, and perhaps if I tried again the next night, things would lead to more than just a fabulous cuddle. But no, I dressed up again the following night, this time in the other new outfit I'd purchased, and the same thing happened again. He could barely look at me, and rather than pin me to the rug, he went out for another long walk and came back and held me yet tighter. After work on the Monday evening, we met at the church for the first time since coming home from our honeymoon. I was dressed in my usual teaching attire, and as before, we played blissful music together until it was gone dark. Jack had started laughing again and we even did a little dance around the hall before we left. When we returned home, he led me upstairs and turned out the light and we made love in our clothes in the pitch black. And at last, it was successful from start to finish. I tried to work out what was different and I realised that it was the first time we had played music together properly since we had married and thought maybe that was it. Maybe he needed to play music to want to make love and it was nothing to do with how I dressed at all. And for the next few nights, the same thing happened and I came to believe this was true. We played, we sang, we danced, we came home, we made love in the dark in our clothes, and I started to relax. But then on Saturday, he was fidgety all day, unable to settle, not really wanting to play music and looking out of the window like an animal trapped at the zoo. After dinner, he said he needed his head-clearing walk, and within moments... He was grabbing his coat and almost running down the road in the direction of the sea. When he returned, he did not attempt to make love to me, but instead snuggled up and told me how much he loved me. Confused but relieved to hear the words, I let him stroke my hair and tell me how happy he was to have married me. Then on Sunday night, he did exactly the same again. Must have been three or four months that things continued like this. Week nights after playing music, him making love to me in the dark in my clothes, and then on Saturdays and Sundays, him going off and coming back late, then holding me and whispering sweet nothings in my ear. I wasn't the kind of woman who discussed private things with family or friends, and in spite of my confusion... I still felt close to Jack and knew he meant it when he told me he loved me. 
It was just that things were so bizarre when it came to making love. Then one Saturday afternoon, I was downstairs baking with Rachmaninoff full blast on the gramophone and couldn't find my hanky, so went upstairs to look for it. I'd just reached the threshold of our bedroom when I heard a strange shuffling sound and I stopped to look through the inch-gap opening of the door. And there I saw my husband, with his penis in his hand, frantically masturbating while staring down into the garden below. At first I froze, not knowing what to do. But then as he began to reach a crescendo, I slipped downstairs, not wanting him to know I had seen him. I rushed into the garden to see who this woman was who had made my husband so aroused that he had stood there in the middle of our bedroom, unable to contain himself. But to my horror, I discovered our next-door neighbour, Mr. Llewellyn, chopping wood shirtless in the early spring sun. And suddenly, I realised my husband didn't want to be a husband at all. He wanted something altogether different indeed. Why now, you must think I was so stupid. How could I possibly not have known I'd married a gay man? Why hadn't I spotted the signs? But you have to remember, things were different back then. We knew that men going with men was a sin and against the law, and boys showing any hint of effeminacy were called Nancys until they stopped doing whatever it was that was considered wrong. But the concept of gay people, gay men, wasn't really even thought about or discussed. When Jack had courted me and done nothing but kiss me softly on the lips goodbye. I assumed it was because he was a gentleman. How could I have possibly known any different? So as I stood in our garden, trying to absorb the fact that my husband desired the man next door more than he desired me, I didn't have a proper name for it. I was simply horrified and broken-hearted. Of course, like any woman from my background, I said absolutely nothing, but instead tried to work out what it all meant. I looked back on the past four months and saw a pattern. If he was high from music and it was dark and I was not naked, he wanted me enough to make love to me. If there was no music and I dressed femininely, to make him want me, the exact opposite occurred. Therefore, I had to find a way to give him what he actually needed. And so I did an experiment. Next morning, I told him I was going to do some gardening and asked if I could borrow a pair of his trousers and a shirt as I didn't have any of my own. He didn't question it and we were about the same size, so I put on the outfit he provided and a pair of his old shoes, tied my hair back tightly and then spent an hour in the garden while he played piano indoors. When I came in, still dressed in his attire, 
I joined him at the piano and picked up my violin. Together we played the Kreutzer Sonata by Beethoven. And on the final note, he looked up and down at me for the first time with a flash of lust. So I grabbed his hand and led him upstairs, where we made love in the light and finally both enjoyed it. And so, at the first opportunity, I went out and bought myself a selection of men's clothes to wear in the privacy of our own home and a selection of women's clothes that was slightly more masculine to wear in the outside world. And I can honestly say that for the next few months, Jack and I made love and enjoyed it every night. Still in the dark during the week when I looked like a woman, but in the light at weekends when I looked like a man. It had worked. No more long walks because of headaches, no more trouble at the beginning or halfway through. When he didn't see me as a woman, my husband desired me. I didn't mind. I didn't. I know that sounds crazy, but I was madly in love with him and he was so lovely in every other way. Kind and considerate, always helping with the household tasks, never expecting me to do everything just because I was a woman. And the music, oh, the endless music. Our little world was so happy. It was a small sacrifice to look like a man for him in order for us to get what we both needed. Our life together finally worked. Until, of course, I fell pregnant. Within a few months of being expectant, my belly swelling and my breast growing larger, I was back to wearing flowing dresses all of the time. Anything else was impossible. Jack was as lovely as ever, taking over more of the housework, indulging my food cravings and rubbing my feet. He was so excited about the baby and would lie with his head on my stomach singing lullabies to our unborn child. But it wasn't long before I'd catch him looking out of the window with a pained expression on his face, not knowing I was watching him. We were no longer making love and I knew that it wasn't just because I was four months pregnant but because I looked like a woman again and he didn't desire me when I looked female. After a while, the long walks at night to clear his head recommenced. The first week, just the once, and he came back looking peaceful. And the next day, he spent hours composing, playing and singing. He seemed content again for a few days. But soon the restless sadness returned, and before long he went out for another walk, only for the same thing to occur the following day. Renewed musical bliss, laughter and creativity. Within three weeks, Jack was going out nearly every night. I think deep down I knew what it might be. Even when you don't know about these things, you sort of do. But I guess I had to see for myself. 
to really understand what it was, who he was. So one night, now nearly six months pregnant, I followed him, slipping out just after he left in the direction of the docks. It didn't take long to catch up enough to see exactly where he was. He walked down to a spot not far from where one of the merchant navy ships was docked. And after a few minutes, an enormous man dressed in sailing garb approached him and together they walked to an area of bombed-out factories and struck out. I followed them stealthily, but close enough to see, creeping as near as I could in the dim light. I must admit, I was still shocked at what I witnessed. My husband was bent over with his trousers round his ankles, letting himself be pummeled. Yes, literally pummeled by a man nearly twice his size and almost screaming with pleasure, his face wild with ecstatic joy. As I watched in stunned silence, I realised that even my attempts to dress like a man had given him nothing but a poor substitute for what he actually wanted. thing that he needed most in the world, I simply could not give. And I vowed then that I would never again fool myself into believing that he actually wanted me. This is who he was, and his need to be taken by a man was in fact, even greater than my own. I know what you're asking now. Why didn't I confront him? Why didn't I leave? But you forget this was the late 1950s. I didn't even know the proper term for what I had witnessed. All I knew is that religion and society looked on it as a sin worthy of burning in hell, and the law forbade it. How could I possibly even begin a conversation with him? And women did not leave their husbands back then, not if they wanted to remain in their community. It simply wasn't done. And for a pregnant woman to leave, well, that would have been the end of everything. Family, friends, church, community, everything. So I said nothing. Instead, I decided to settle for what I had and make the most of it. When he came back brimming with energy, I would encourage him to compose straight away rather than waiting. And then the following morning, we would play it together. And if it was a song, I would help write the lyrics. We would become lost in musical bliss and laugh and chatter and dance and cuddle. He was happier and more creative than I'd ever known him. And when our child arrived, a girl we named Bronwyn, he held her in his arms and promised her he would be the best daddy in the world. And I cried with happiness. Unlike the husbands of my friends and peers, Jack helped me with every aspect of being a mother, from getting up at three o'clock in the morning to rock our baby back to sleep, 
to changing and washing dirty nappies. Our life was so deeply loving that him not wanting to make love to me felt like a tiny trade-off for such satisfaction and contentment in every other area of my life. So what if he went down the docks every night to get pummeled by a random sailor? He was happy. I was happy. Our baby was happy. Don't judge me. I am not a victim. Hear the rest of my story first. But before I tell you any more, do ask yourself this. Do you know anyone, anyone at all, who has found absolutely everything they ever wanted or needed in their marriage? In my experience, all women give up a huge part of themselves sometimes the most vibrant, creative part of their being to make their marriage work. I actually, even now, after everything that happened subsequently, still think I got off lightly in my forfeit compared to some of my friends. Anyway, after a couple of years of this new realigned happiness, I realised that if I wanted to have another child, I had to make Jack remember he needed to make love to me as well as cuddle. May sound silly to you, but we would curl up in the bed every night and then simply fall asleep. I never tried to touch him and he never tried to touch me. At this point, he did not know I knew about his sexual needs, but I think he knew I no longer expected him to perform husbandly duties. So I had to make a decision. Should I tell him I knew he desired men, not women, but I wanted another baby? Or should I just do what was required to make him want me enough so I would end up pregnant anyway? I realised that I didn't wish to shatter our happy home with agonising conversations, so instead... I started wearing trousers and shirts in the house again at weekends, tied my hair back and this time even added the tiniest spot of his aftershave at my neck. And then after a few weekends, one Saturday when he returned home late, I asked him to sing with me at the piano instead of compose. And once we had been united by our mutual love of music, I led him upstairs to bed. It worked again. <laughs> Men are much easier to manipulate than you think, even gay ones. After eight weekends of dressing like a man, I was pregnant. And like last time, as soon as I began to dress and look like a woman again, our lovemaking stopped. At least this time, I was prepared for it. I had got what I wanted. Another baby growing inside my womb. And the music played on. Stupidly, I believed that things would be pretty and jolly forever. And they were for a few months. Until it happened. The event that changed everything. The event that destroyed all parts of my existence. The bomb that dropped in the centre of my life. 
our life. One night, when I was now seven months pregnant with our second child, Jack did not return home at the usual time, but instead, at just gone midnight, there was an urgent rat-a-tat-tat on the door, and I opened it to find Dylan, our local beat bobby, standing there looking white and gulping. My first reaction was to scream, believing Jack was dead. Maybe he had been run over or had tripped in the rubble by the docks and smashed his head. But no, it wasn't that. It was in many ways a more terrible event for both of us. I'm uh, sorry, Mrs. Lewis. I, uh, I, uh... Constable Delan hesitated. I, uh, I've, I've come to inform you that your husband has been arrested for gross indecency with another man. You have to remember times were very different back then. And no one could survive a scandal like that in a town like Swansea. We're not talking about densely populated city like London where people could move three miles away to the other side and start again without a soul knowing who they were. This was a metaphorical death. On being convicted and sent down, Jack's life in Swansea was over for good. But what you probably don't understand and why I chose to stay with him and indeed move to London. So was mine. Think for a minute. A society where homosexuality was universally condemned as a sin and a crime. A town where everyone knew everyone else. What was I to become? The object of gossip, pity, scandal. Could I really have ever had a normal life again, even if I got divorced? No. My devastated parents, brothers and sisters, wanted me to divorce and disown him. They thought this was the only way to salvage our reputation as a family. But they were only thinking of themselves, not me. My life would forever be tarnished by the scandal. Oh, look, there goes Mrs. Lewis. Did you know her ex-husband was sent to jail for being buggered by a sailor down the docks? Oh, sorry for her, I am. Jack pleaded guilty, so there was no trial. Only a sentencing which I did not attend because I knew it would kill him to have me there. Eighteen months he was given. During the following four weeks, now almost nine months pregnant, I left the house just once to finally visit him in prison. My youngest brother, Michael, the only one of us who had a car, drove me to Cardiff where Jack was being held, waited outside while I went in. When Jack saw me, he crumbled. Me, just days away from giving birth to his second child, and him in abject shame, his life in tatters. 
He could barely speak through the tears. I held both his hands in mine and told him that I loved him and that nothing he had done could change that. He looked at me seriously then and asked, Even now you know what I am. At which point I shook my head and cupped his cheek in my hand. My darling boy, I've known exactly what you are for most of our marriage. And I have still loved you just as much as I always did. He started to howl then, so loudly that I had to calm him down. As everyone around us began staring and the guards looked set to move in to break up our visit. Listen. I said, I have been in touch with your sister in London. She says she can sort us out a flat not far from her house in Clapham. As soon as the baby is born, I will go there. And then, when you are out, if you want to, we can start again. Jack looked surprised at this and said, You mean it will be like it was before? We can pretend this never happened? I shook my head and was firm with him then. No, not like before. If we do this, we have to be honest. No more pretenses. We have to face up to who you are and what that means for both of us. But I have to ask you something first. What? Do you want to have a relationship with a man like the one you had with me? Or is what you got caught for doing just a thing that you need to feel satisfied? He gulped and trembled, then grasped both of my hands again and said, You are the love of my life. I will never love anyone else the way I love you. I want to be with you always, and I want to be a father to our children. I stared at him for a while trying to be sure he meant it before finally responding. Then come to London, I said, and we will work out the rest once you're there. I didn't visit Jack in prison again. Four days later, I gave birth to our second daughter, Glynis. Then shortly after that, when I was well enough to travel, Michael drove me to London and I moved into the flat that Jack's sister had arranged. None of my family wanted me to leave, but I think they knew after countless arguments, discussions and debates that even if I didn't take Jack back, in the end I would be better off in London. My mother wept as I left and I promised her I would come back as often as I could so she could see the girls. My father took me to one side and said... I'm sorry this has happened to you, Sarah. But you do know that if you take him back, he can never set foot in his house again, don't you? I nodded, kissed him on the cheek, and then got in the car without looking back. My life in Swansea was over. Once I had settled in London, I had a choice to make. Was I going to relegate myself to a life without intimacy, or could I, like Jack, find satisfaction elsewhere? 
I knew I could not, and indeed would not, know how to have anonymous encounters. Such opportunities did not exist for women back then in the way they do now. But I wondered whether perhaps I might meet a man like me who needed an arrangement rather than a relationship. But again, a woman making those kind of arrangements was unheard of. Women had very limited autonomy over such matters. As it was, I fell into a relationship with a man called Simon who lived in the same building. He was single, having broken up from his fiancée just before their wedding and had moved away by taking the job as an engineer on the London Underground. One day we got chatting in the hallway and he helped me upstairs with my shopping. He asked me where my husband was and I said, in prison for fraud. This is what Jack and I had agreed would be our story. People forgave fraud. They did not forgive sodomy. As he put the shopping down on the counter and turned to me, I saw a dart of attraction in his eyes and I realised that this might be my opportunity to have a sex life of my own. Simon was a good-looking man. <laughs> Very good-looking, in fact, and extremely masculine. And so, gradually... I let him help me with jobs around the flat and when he was due I found myself putting on lipstick and adding little extra touches of femininity to my attire, even buying myself a shorter skirt than I would have ever considered before. <laughs> the more femininely I dressed, the more he looked at me and the longer he stayed around. Then. One evening, a few weeks in, he knocked on the door late at night after the children were asleep. Smelling of beer and unsteady on his feet, he asked me, You ever get lonely without your husband here? And I, knowing it was now or never, said yes and stepped forward. I have to admit... I really enjoyed the first few months of that relationship. I enjoyed being wanted for being female, being taken by a man that actually desired women, gruff and selfish though he was. He never had any trouble or hesitation. He liked doing it to me and I liked having it done. If I wore a low-cut blouse, short skirt and put on bright lipstick, we would end up in bed almost immediately, barely saying hello. I even bought frilly knickers, knowing intuitively that wearing them would make him want me even more. I felt female, all woman, at last. But then a funny thing happened. I started to get bored. Yes, Simon liked having me, and yes, sometimes I had an orgasm, but he was no more interested in my pleasure than Jack had been. He was only interested in his own. What's more, he wasn't actually that interested in me, other than the standard, how are you, love? He never asked anything about me or my interest, just talked about himself. And, well... I think ultimately this is what killed it for me in the end. It turned out that he didn't know anything about music other than the 
pop songs he listened to on the wireless. He'd never been to a concert, never sang in a choir, didn't know Bach from Brahms, nothing. There was no way this man was ever going to dance around the living room with me to celebrate that I'd hit all the high notes in Queen of the Night. So gradually, as the novelty wore off, I stopped dressing up for him and began talking about Jack coming home soon, until eventually, one night, there was no knock on my door, nor any night after that. Two weeks later, Simon moved out of his flat and I never saw him again. In all honesty, I was relieved. I'd got what I wanted and needed, and now I could get on with my life without insecurity. But it was after this that I promised myself I would never, ever dress for a man again. I would only ever dress for me, wear what I wanted to wear, look how I wanted to look. When Jack finally joined me in London, he was a broken man. Prison is not an easy ordeal for anyone, but for a Nancy boy it is as tough as you can get. Bullied, battered and occasionally raped, his soul had been crushed by the regime. My visit was the only one he'd had. His family, apart from Gwen or his sister, who had found us the flat, had disowned him. He had been totally alone. I think if it hadn't been for meeting his new daughter, he might never have recovered. As it was in those first few months, I tended to him like another child, feeding him soft and comforting foods, holding him in my arms and rocking him while he cried, and soothing him after nightmares. Then, when he was strong again, we sat down and talked. I had used up all our savings and had been living off the charity of my parents and his sister, and things needed to change before resentments crept in. With a criminal record, Jack could never teach in a school or be a church organist again, but he could teach private music lessons to adults. So we decided that I would go back to work as a full-time teacher and he would look after the girls in the day and give music lessons in the evenings and on weekends. That part of the arrangement was the easy bit to discuss. But I knew, now he was recovered, I had to tackle the hard part too. So one evening, when I saw the faraway look in his eye, the one that had landed him in prison in the first place. I sat him down and said, Jack, I can never change who you are and I don't want to anymore. But I cannot let you risk this life or that of the girls by saying it's okay for you to go out and meet men in dark places. I have lost one life for you already and I cannot lose another. He stopped me then and vowed he would never go with a man again. At which point, for the first time ever, I was angry with him. Don't you dare make promises you can't keep. We 
Both know that's not true, and I won't be lied to. I saw you, Jack. I followed you one night. I know exactly what you want and how you like it, and I know full well that a time will come when you won't be able to help yourself. So shut up and show me some respect and listen. He was red then, shamed and mortified that I had seen him with the sailor, unable to look me in the eye. So I stopped shouting and spoke firmly instead. The only thing I ask is this. If you want to do that, then you must do it in a safe place. I will be taking the girls home once a month to see their grandparents. While I'm gone, you can do whatever you want with whoever you want in this flat. But if I find out that you have been at it in toilets bushes or bombed out buildings, then I am leaving you for good. Is that clear? He nodded, still looking deeply ashamed. Do we have a deal? I pressed. He nodded again. And so the next phase of our marriage began. And I have to tell you, those next 24 years were the happiest years of my life. Our home was filled with music once more. Our children learned piano, violin and clarinet. And oh, how we sang. We were proud parents watching our girls grow into fine young women. Bronwyn went on to be a concert pianist and Clinis became a primary school teacher like me. Jack kept his promise. He never again went out at night. But as agreed, once a month I visited my family in Swansea and he had the flat to himself. He didn't talk about it, but I knew he used it for the intended purpose. I could tell by the way he was when I returned. We slept in the same bed that night, but we never made love again. Only cuddled and kissed goodnight before turning to sleep. And to be honest, I didn't mind. Somewhere along the way, my sexual desire for him had died and my feelings of in-love had morphed into family love. And I was happy. <laughs> I didn't even take a lover I didn't want anything to shatter our precious little world full of music, comfort and care. But of course, life is never kind forever and truly happy endings exist for no one. And eventually our idyllic little life was smashed into a thousand pieces for a second time. Sorry. It's just that this next part is hard for me. In late 1983, a few weeks after having what he thought was a bad dose of flu, Jack developed the dark patch on his right shin and went to the doctors, only to have it confirmed a week later. What we already both knew in our hearts that he had contracted AIDS. As a straight woman with a gay husband, I 
never thought for a moment that allowing Jack to use our marital bed to fulfil needs that I could not would ultimately lead to the encounter that killed him. And I look back now as a receiver rather than a giver. Jack never stood a chance of dodging that disease. Perhaps if it had been the other way around, he might, just might, have escaped it. But he was unlucky. They were all unlucky, those men. Straight people can be very judgmental about that generation of gay men, saying that they brought their early deaths upon themselves and if they hadn't slept around, then it wouldn't have spread like the plague. That they forget that gay men had already broken the taboo concerning sleeping with people outside of marriage and could have sex without fear of pregnancy. So why would they have considered that having sex with lots of men rather than just one man was even an issue? The children knew nothing about Jack's sexuality, or so we thought. Therefore, when the crushing diagnosis was upon us, we told them it must have been from a dirty needle when he donated blood. It wasn't until years later that Bronwyn told me that she and Glynis had known since they were teenagers about Jack's stay in prison. One of their cousins had told them during an argument and they'd asked my sister if it was true. So as it turned out, like us, our daughters had not wanted to break the magic of our happy family and had played along with our explanation, knowing it wasn't the case. The last two months of Jack's life were spent in an AIDS ward in a hospital in North London. I cannot describe the pain for me, Bronwyn and Glynis are watching him wither away before us. Each day a little thinner, a little weaker, the light slowly fading from his cobalt's blue eyes. At first we would all sing together as a family, bowing to make music together right until the end. But when he came to his final days, Jack no longer had the strength to join us and we had to sing for him. The night before he died, he started drifting in and out of consciousness. After the girls went home, I stayed with him and stroked his soft thatch of greying hair, singing to him gently. Just before he fell asleep for good, he reached for me and rasped. You are the love of my life. I'm sorry I caused you so much pain. And I, knowing that this was goodbye, kissed him gently on the lips and replied, And you are the love of my life. And a little pain was more than worth it for all the joy and music you gave me. At which point his eyes closed and I held his hand until he was gone. And that night, part of me died with him.
So what about me? Widowed before reaching 50, did I find love again? Well, kind of. I know you would love me to tell you that I met a new man with a personality like Jack's, but with a heterosexual drive of Simon. Now that's a fairy tale. You do know that, don't you? One in a million women meet a man like that. And I simply didn't. However, I did eventually fall a little bit in love again. No one tells you when you're young that there are different strengths of in love. But I assure you there are. The miles between madly in love and a little bit in love, though, are substantial. But with the children both married and loneliness stripping away what little sense of purpose I had left, when love came again, I embraced it welcomingly. Five years after Jack passed away, Richard started teaching science at the same school as me. And with him being recently widowed too, we had a fundamental understanding of one another. Richard didn't play a musical instrument or sing. He didn't even know how to dance. But he did like listening to classical music and accompanying me to concerts. He was also a full-blooded heterosexual. I kept my promise to myself that I would never dress to please a man again. But he liked my style and he never needed coaxing when it came to making love. Richard and I were together for 30 years until he passed away. Exactly the same amount of time I was with Jack. We had a good marriage, a safe marriage, and I did care for him. But did he worship me the way Jack did? No. Was our house filled with music and laughter from morning until night? No. Did my heart somersault every time he smiled at me? No. You are lucky, deeply lucky, if you get that twice in one lifetime. And this is why I am sitting here telling you all this. Why I have told you my story. Because I want you to know that all love is precious. And all love is worth it. But the most important thing, the bit that I really want you to remember is sometimes the love of your life is not your lover. They are your best friend. Dress for Men from the In Isolation monologue suite was written, directed and produced by Rachel Dax, performed by Sarah Harris-Davis, with soundscape from David Shell and original music score by Michael O. Lewis. <laughs>